0: Shalom, this is Rabbi Thomas Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you Parashah number 41. This is Pinkas, Adit Bad Medbar 25, chapters 10 through 31. All right. If you have any questions, comments, uh any, any remarks that you'd like to make, uh, please send them to our website under the Ask the Rabbi link. And I'll be happy to entertain uh, anything you might have to say about these uh, these podcasts. All right, so this week we read of Pinkas who committed a violent act, slaying both Zimri, that was the prince of Shimon, and Cosby, the princess of the Midianites. And this narrative is a continuation of the last paragraph from our last parasha. Recall that Bilam advised Balak to entice the Jews to sin by mixing and mingling with Midianites. And his story makes it very clear that there are times when anger is proper and justified. This truth is supported by the fact that Pincus was rewarded with Yahweh's covenant of peace. And this would seem to fly in the face of the sixth commandment, that thou shalt not murder. But this narrative provides another example of the need to explore more than the literal word in God's Torah to fully understand what's being taught. The question should be, then, Number one, why am I angry? Number two, is there a violation of God's Torah at stake in the particular situation? And number three, whose biblical rights are being violated? Mine or someone else's? Now sometimes it's more prudent to restrain anger in its expression, but if the truth is on the line, anger is often justified. Recall the Yeshua provides guidance on this issue. Turning the other cheek addresses not allowing someone's attack on our individual character to provoke us to anger. Best way to remember this one is, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. (laughs) That's a good one to remember. We read of Yeshua's restraint many times in his Torah, but we also read of his righteous anger, especially dealing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Another classic example describes the corrupt trade that was going on outside the temple and the selling of second-rate animals that were not acceptable for sacrifices. We can almost feel the anger As Yeshua turned over the tables of the money changers, the people were being taken advantage of, cheated through unfair exchange rates, and being compelled to purchase so called temple approved animals for their sacrifices under the guise that their own animals were not worthy. By examining this and other narratives, it's easier for us to understand why Pincus was blessed by God with a covenant of peace. Now, Jewish names describe the essence of the subject named. Pincus translates as history. He was the grandson of Aharon, whose line was granted the priesthood forever by God. Now, could it be that Pincus was making history or that his action provided a historical continuation of the redeeming line leading to Yeshua? After all, Aharon's actions atoning for the sin of the Israelites described in the parashah three weeks ago symbolized the atonement provided by Yeshua, in this parasha, Aharon's grandson performs an act that atoned for the people, more brazen than that of his grandfather. They call it Moshe, ordered Aharon to run in the middle of those being killed by the plague. In the case of Pinchas, he took the risk upon himself, in defense of God's righteousness, and single-handedly ran a spear through Zimri. By the way, Zimri means to sing, praise, or make music, and Zimri was from Simeon, known for musical abilities. And Cosby translates as lie. That's L-I-E. There was a plague in progress during this episode, just as during the episodes with Aharon. And this time, God was punishing the people for whoring with the women of Moab. The Moabites were descendants of one of Lot's daughters as a result of a sexual union with Lot, their father. The Moabites were polytheists, but worshipped Chemosh as the main god. Chemosh was a general a deity of the same nature as Baal. On critical occasions, a human sacrifice was considered necessary to secure his favor, and when deliverance came, a sanctuary might be built to him. An ancient poem twice quoted in the Old Testament regards the Moabites as children of Komesh, and also calls them the people of Qomosh. Israelites took part in child sacrifice, and Solomon committed idolatry with the gods of the Moabites. Solomon is said to have built a sanctuary to Chamosh on the Mount of Olives, which was maintained until the reform of Josiah. That's in 2 Kings. This movement by Solomon was no doubt, to some extent, a political one, but it made the worship of Chamosh a part of the religious life of Israel for nearly 400 years. However, according to 2 Kings 11, the evidence is given that Chamosh and Moloch were two different gods or perhaps two manifestations of the same God, at least to the people who worshipped them. Solomon had high places built for both gods at the same time and in the same location on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. Both Chemosh and Molech may have had the same origins, but if so, by Solomon's time they'd been dom- uh, denominated into differing uh, objects for different people, Chemosh for the Moabites and Moloch for the Ammonites. This would make sense as each would represent each of lot's sons when will we ever learn next we must understand what it means to be a Cohen or a priest similarly we should all understand that true believers are priests according to one peter two nine and it says but ye are a chosen generation that is nation a royal priesthood an holy nation a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And lastly, we should ask ourselves, what is the function and nature of a priest, if that's what we're supposed to act like? And we are supposed to act like that. Aharon was chosen as the first Kohen because he loved and pursued peace, according to the Pirke Avot, which is a a book of Sayings of the Fathers. He devoted his life to the ideal of peace, never considering it beneath his dignity to foster love and understanding. Well, this could have been to a fault as he uh, relented to the people and and had the golden calf uh, constructed. He pursued peace between man and man. And in his role as the Kohen Gadol, high priest, he continued his role in the Mishkan, that's the tabernacle, between man and God. Aharon came to symbolize the ideal Kohen, the man of Yahweh Elohim who strives for the welfare of others with no thought for personal gain. This example typifies Yeshua, who as the perfect high priest was obedient unto death so that we might be saved. It doesn't say will, might. We have our part to do. Carry the testimony of Yeshua, that is repenting and being reconciled to God through Yeshua and guarding the commands of Hashem. That means following God's Torah. That's mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation as previously mentioned pincus puts his own life at risk when he rushed into zimri's tent because there was a plague ravaging the nation and yahweh commends pincus for atoning for the israelites pincus acted to bring about peace between man and yahweh just like a Kohen gedal who serves in the mishkan his desire to create shalom between man and god showed he was worthy of the enormous responsibility of fostering peace and understanding within the nation aharon's overriding quality was his selfless desire to create shalom between man and man. Yahweh, on the other hand, selected Pincus for preserving the connection between God and man. Both of these qualities demonstrate a love of the people. Because of this, Yahweh gave to Pincus his pledge of peace and appointed Pincus and all his descendants as Kohenim in Israel. Can we who are termed a nation of priests fail to exhibit the same kind of love toward Yahweh and every other believer? Is the plague of rebellion against God's Torah any less deadly than a physical plague? I submit to you it's more so, because it's permanent. It pervades the soul well below the skin level. May we, like Pincus, love God so completely that defending his Torah becomes instinctive. I so wish, and I can't say uh, what those policemen in Uvaldi were thinking at the time, but I wish they had had the heart of Pincus. And had run to save those children and encounter that kid before they were all killed. Our Havtura is out of First Kings. In this Padasha, pinkus is acknowledged as the first zealot of Israel. And in the half-draw we see that this quality still exists within B'nai Israel. And it's one of the characteristics of a great prophet. As Eliyahu, that's Elijah, says in 1 Kings, I've indeed been very zealous for Yahweh Elohim. Now there's a difference between being zealous and being reckless, and I'm afraid of what I'm seeing in this country sometimes where people who are zealous for upholding the laws of this land are becoming more reckless in their zeal for wanting to do the right thing ultimately. Now note the word here. Zealous is an adjective meaning full of, characterized by, or due to zeal, ardently active, devoted, or diligent. Diligent and devoted. Zealous does not imply impulsiveness. That's what we have to learn to do, is restrain our anger and think about our actions before we follow through and not act on our human impulse. The prophet Elijah is the main protagonist of this week's Haftarah and according to tradition he shared the same soul as Pincus, the hero of this week's Torah portion. They also both zealously fought on God's behalf while disregarding the dangers involved. Following the showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, which led to the extinction of the Baal priests, the evil Queen Jezebel issued a death sentence for Elijah. And he fled to the Judean desert and asked God to take his life. While he slept, an angel awoke him and provided him with food and drink. Now, it's hard to learn if we're hungry or thirsty, so God took care of this human need first. Re-energized, he went for forty days until he arrived at Mount Horeb, that's Sinai. And he slept in a cave on the mountain. And the word of God came to him and asked him for the purpose of his visit. And Elijah said, I have been zealous for God, the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have killed your prophets by the sword, and I have remained alone and they seek to take my life. Now Elijah was instructed to leave the cave and stand on the mountain. This is figuratively like taking off your life jacket and jumping in the water, totally exposing yourself and trusting the one who's asking you to do it. There was a great strong wind splitting mountains and shattering boulders, but Elijah realized that God was not in the wind. Then came an earthquake followed by fire. But again Elijah understood that not in the earthquake nor the fire was God. After the fire there was a subtle silent voice and Elijah realized that the Divine Presence had appeared. If we'll just sit down and shut up long enough to humbly pray and seek God's guidance in all that we do, we'll be fine. But we always seem to think we have a better way of doing things, and it always ends up wrong. God asked Elijah again for the purpose of his visit. It's not because God didn't know. He wanted Elijah to think about what he was saying. And Elijah repeated his earlier response. And God instructed him to go to Damascus and anoint Hazael as king of Aram and Yehu as king of Israel and to anoint Elisha as a prophet in his stead. And these three would continue Elijah's battle against Baal. Elijah followed his instructions and he immediately found Elisha and recruited him as his aide and eventual successor. Now there can be no doubt that Pincus and Elijah were religious heroes. Not like anybody who's able to pee and poop gets a sticker today, or gets a trophy just for showing up. These people were heroes. They stepped into the breach at a time when the nation was facing religious and moral crisis and palpable divine anger. They acted while everyone else, at best, watched. They risked their lives by so doing. There can be little doubt that the mob might have turned against them and attacked them. Indeed, after the trial on Mount Carmel, Jezebel lets it be known that she intends to have Elijah killed. Both men acted for the sake of God and the religious welfare of the nation, and God himself is called a zealous many times in the Torah. Yet their treatment of both the written and oral Torah is deeply ambivalent. God gives Pincus my covenant of peace, meaning that he will never again have to act on the part of a zealot. Indeed, in Judaism, the shedding of human blood is incompatible with service at the sanctuary. Remember, King David was forbidden to build the temple for this reason, and others. As for Elijah, he was implicitly rebuked by God in one of the greatest scenes of the Bible. Standing at Horeb, God shows him a whirlwind, an earthquake, and a fire, but God is not in any of these. Then he comes to Elijah in a still small voice he then asks Elijah for the second time what are you doing here and elijah replies using the same words as before i have been very zealous for the lord god almighty now he hasn't understood that god has been trying to tell him that he's not found in violent confrontation just as i would submit and hope that people who are in that mode today as far as governmental control and, and world events go would listen to this and take heart God is not in the force he is the force he's in gentleness and the word softly spoken he has this now satan is the prince of the power of the air and he is going around now devouring who he may but this is not happening without God's purview God then tells Elisha to be appointed as his successor he tells elijah to appoint elisha more profoundly the zealot is in effect taking the place of god as rashi says commenting on the phrase pincus has turned my anger away from the israelites by being zealous with my zeal pincus executed my vengeance and showed the anger i should have shown now this is jewish commentary in general we are commanded to walk in god's ways and imitate his attributes just as he is merciful and compassionate So you be merciful and compassionate. That is not, however, the case when it comes to executing punishment or vengeance. God who knows all may execute sentence without a trial, but being mere humans we are not given that right or that privilege. There are forms of justice that are in God's domain, not ours, and vengeance is definitely one of those the zealot who takes the law into his own hands is embarking on a course of action fraught with moral danger only the most holy may do so only once in a lifetime and only in the most dire circumstances when a nation is at risk when there is nothing else to be done and no one else to do it even then were the zealot to ask permission from a court it would be denied picus gave his name to the padashah in which moshe asked god to appoint a successor so why was Pincus, the hero of the hour, not appointed instead of Joshua? His answer was that a zealot cannot be a leader. This requires patience, forbearance, and respect for due process. The zealots within besieged Jerusalem in the last days of the Second Temple played a significant part in the city's destruction. They were more intent on fighting one another than the Romans outside the city walls, nothing in the religious life is more risk-laden than zeal, and nothing more compelling than the truth of God. Taught Elijah that God is not to be found in the use of force, but in the still small voice that turns the sinner from sin. And again, as for vengeance, that belongs to God alone. Our brevity out of First Corinthians five. And this scripture reiterates that we are not to boast. We are a new lump and must work at keeping ourselves unleavened in the eyes of God, always striving to live in purity and truth. This is a lifelong race. It is not a once saved, always saved proposition taught in Christianity. Running a race implies that we are to always look forward, never look back. Keep to the king's highway and veer neither to the right nor left, just as we are admonished in God's Torah, in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Joshua. Although the Edomites, who will be destroyed in the future, would not let the Israelites pass, in the first scripture we read about this metaphor for God's Torah and the race to win the prize, we also read about the Israelites' perseverance, as they simply took the long way around on their travels to Mount War. Similarly, we must not grow weary, not grow weary, but continue until our race is one. Shalom.